from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. The first time I met Alan Kirk was in a piazza in Rome in the year 2000. It was the same year that Pope John Paul II presented at the 18th International Congress of the Transplantation Society. I personally thought the Pope overinterpreted his findings and didn't include the right controls, but that's another story. Sorry if that is offensive to some. Offensive because it wasn't that funny. For that, I apologize. I was with one of my friends who was a surgery resident at Duke and had gotten to know Alan during his training. I have to admit, I was entirely blown away by Alan. Some of it was the setting. Let me set the scene for you. We were sitting in an open square near the Pantheon, the sun setting, the music playing. It went something like this. When the moon hits your eyes like a big pizza pie, that's a more. Sorry, I don't know why I did that. I guess it's just this big microphone in front of me. Well, actually, there wasn't any music, and I don't really remember where we were exactly. But the way Alan talked about transplant, his research, the work he was doing to understand if patients could be transplanted safely with much less immunosuppression. I remember how carefully he thought about the data, the patients, the outcomes, and how honest he was about everything. He cared so much about the ethics of doing these experimental procedures. Over the years, I have gotten to know Alan better, although I have never worked with him. He is one of those people who will always help you if you reach out to him, whether it is to run a research idea past him, talk about a paper you are working on, or help you decide on a career move. He is somewhat of a legend at my own program, the University of Wisconsin, where he did his own transplant fellowship back in 1995 to 97. When I was a fellow, I was so busy and pushed to my limits, I could barely get through the program in one piece. When Dr. Kirk was at Wisconsin, well, let me quote from my book. Oh, did I tell you I wrote a book? I mean, you must have heard of it. If you haven't, it's still available now on Amazon. Go take a look. I'll wait. Okay, well, here it is. Alan Kirk, chairman of surgery at Duke University, last year reached the summit in academic medicine, election to the National Academy of Medicine. When Dr. Kirk was at Wisconsin, he was one of the fellows able to conduct a clinical fellowship while still working in the lab on experiments with primates. One project he spearheaded during his training involved hooking up patients with fulminant liver failure to pig livers in order to filter the blood until the patients could get a human liver for transplantation. He did this a number of times, but one particular case was a young girl whom he kept hooked up to a pig liver in a bucket for 10 days. He never left the girl's bedside, watching her blood flow out of her femoral vein through plastic tubing into the pig portal vein and back out the cava and into a vein in her neck. She finally got a transplant, which went well, but sadly she died afterward. He did ultimately have one long-term survivor of this cross-perfusion procedure, a 17-year-old girl who went on to graduate college and have a child after her human liver transplant. Nevertheless, the cross-perfusion procedure was ultimately abandoned due to its complicated nature and unclear benefit. For Dr. Kirk, the practice of surgery is as much about the science and preclinical experimentation as it is about the operations themselves, end quote. It would take about an hour to read through all of Dr. Kirk's titles. Just to name a few, the David Sabiston Jr. Distinguished Professor of Surgery, Chair, Department of Surgery, Professor of Surgery and Pediatrics and Department of Immunology, all at Duke University. Recent Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Transplantation, the premier journal in our field. He was the inaugural Chief of Transplantation Branch for the NIDDK. He served in the Navy and reached a rank of Commander, and he is now a member of the National Academy of Medicine. Allen is a pioneer in the use of co-stimulation pathway blockade 
to prevent organ rejection in humans. For those who might not be familiar with what that is, T-cells must be activated before they can elicit damage to transplants, first through the T-cell receptor. There also has to be a stimulation through accessory or co-stimulatory molecules to really activate the T-cell and cause rejection. T-cell co-stimulatory blockade attempts to decrease the T-cell response by inhibiting this accessory signaling, perhaps by allowing activation through the T-cell receptor but blocking this secondary response. Rejection can be avoided and tolerance or graft acceptance without, or at least with minimal immunosuppression, can be realized. He is also a leading researcher in xenotransplantation, or the transplantation of organs from pigs into humans. While this is still experimental, it is very possible, even likely, that human trials in kidney transplant will begin in the next few years. If they do, we can be sure that Dr. Kirk will be at the center of it. But maybe most interesting about Alan... When he decided he would become a transplant surgeon, he didn't know that meant he had to go to medical school. I mean, that's kind of weird for a guy who's so smart. But at the time, he was a professional tuba player. I think you will all enjoy this conversation. And I also think you're going to learn something. That something likely will be in reference to making the perfect peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, that may be the most interesting thing I've ever heard from an interviewee. But hey... Given the intelligence of the people that would likely continue listening to a podcast that I host, it is probably as much as you can handle. All right, Alan Kirk, welcome to the set. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. It is so great to have you here. I'm really excited to have my listeners hear a little bit about you because you really are one of the most amazing surgeons I have met. So I hope I hope we can display that just to put a little pressure on you. I'm glad I fooled at least one person. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's start from the beginning. Tell me where you grew up and um, a little bit about what you were like growing up. Uh, so I lived the first four years of my life in Durham, North Carolina. My dad was a graduate student in botany at Duke. So always in a sort of an academic environment. Uh, we moved around several places in the Southeast as my dad was doing his postdoc and and the like, but settled in Virginia Beach, Virginia, after living in the bustling metropolis of Cullowee, North Carolina, and Rocky Mountain, and Blacksburg, and places like that. But most of my formative years were in Virginia Beach, Virginia. My dad was a professor at Old Dominion University. Gotcha. And your dad was a scientist. Now, I, I understand that early in your, as you were growing up, you were really interested in, in music. Is that right? Yeah. So I have always had an interest in uh, both music and science and music won out. So I got in the band when I was in middle school playing the tuba. It was because I would watch the band practice near our house and I saw the you know these big instruments in the back and I thought that that was really interesting. And when you tell a band director you want to play the tuba, like you're his best friend. So he's, you know... <laughs> I was shuttled right along. You know, it's a funny thing. I I didn't know much about tubas other than how ridiculously big they are. But now that I live in Madison, Wisconsin, you realize they're kind of like the the stars of the band, actually. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, one of the only reasons I went to Wisconsin for training is is the tuba players. You know, so. <laughs> so tell me about that. Did you? I mean, you thought you might have a professional career in playing the tuba. Is that right? Yeah, actually, I, I played professionally in high school. Um, I was in uh, the Norfolk Brass Quintet. We toured all over the place. I ended up playing uh, at the Eastern Music Festival uh, in a quintet with Wynton Marsalis. We're the same age, and we played together. And I played at Tanglewood with the Boston Pops and then, you know, went to Boston to kind of do that for a while. I, you know, did did pretty well at it. Uh, recorded some stuff and, and played with the Joffrey Ballet and did a bunch of stuff. That's incredible. I, was there a point where you realized I need to do something different or, or how did that come up? Yeah, I don't know exactly how it came up. I, I know I, I was recording a job for a cruise line at about 11 o'clock at night in Boston and trying to take the subway home with a, a tuba in your lap. And, and I thought maybe there's a better way. It really didn't come out until um, I was looking for an apartment and I, my fiance, who I met when I was in um, middle school, was up looking for an apartment in Boston. And in the, in the realtor's office, I decided I was going to be a transplant surgeon. It just like came out of nowhere. I think it was mainly because transplant surgery in the late 70s, early 80s was kind of like saying you're going to be a fighter pilot or something. You know, it was a, an epitome of great medical achievement because it never really worked back then. And every time it did, 
it was in the papers. Right. So you got excited about transplant because you saw it like in the press or the papers. And and isn't it true you you said, I'm going to do that, but you didn't have any idea what that entailed? Yeah, no, I, I, we flew home from Boston. I I proudly called my dad, you know, who like understood science and things. And I said, dad, I'm not going to be a tumor player anymore. And you could see the glee in his eyes, you know. But, but then I said, I'm going to be a transplant surgeon. And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, you have to go to medical school to do that. And I did not know that. And so at that moment, I either had to admit to my dad, I had no idea what I was talking about, or I had to go to medical school. And um, I had not taken any science, no math, nothing. I mean, zero. And so I took all of the prerequisites for the MCATs in one year, biology, physics, PCHEM, organic chemistry, regular chemistry, calculus, 35 credit hours. And then I took the MCATs and I applied to Duke and got in. Were you a good student in high school and in college before all this? Or I was a good student. I could have been a better student if I had tried, but I, I just practiced. That's all I did. I just want the listeners to know because I, if you don't know Alan, he is truly one of the most, the smartest, most innovative, thoughtful people I know. So it just shows you, you got to just work hard and commit, right? Is that is that the story? Well, yeah, you got to decide what you're going to do. Um, and the skill set for most things is similar. You know, if, if you're going to be a great tuba player or an athlete or a dancer, I mean, you have to suffer for that and, and work hard at it and really want to do it. And I think that when a lot of medical students ask me, you know, what are you looking for? I'm looking for people that are earnest, that they really want to do what they say they want to do. They're not trying to do it because it makes them look good or they think it's important for their career. And I really wanted to be a tuba player. I loved it. I still do. You still play? Every now and then, I, I'll spin it up for a few months, but it, I, it always takes control and I have to put it back down. So, you know, I'm, I either am on and playing or I'm off. I don't I don't have anything in the middle. Can I back up for a second? Because, so you've known your wife from, what, like sixth grade or something like that? Yeah, we went roller skating in the summer after sixth grade. Can you, I heard something funny about that date. Tell me, tell me that. <laughs> Well, I mean, it didn't go very well. My my dad drove us. He told bad jokes all the way. It was her first date. It was my first date. We were roller skating. All of a sudden, you know, it's the middle of the 70s and the, the mirror ball comes out and the lights come down for couples skating. She ran to the bathroom. You know, I went to the snack bar and then we went home. So it took a while for us to have our second date. <laughs> I guess so. I think some of the listeners might not realize that roller skating was like a popular uh, date activity back at, back in those days but um so she she was with you through the whole tuba experience was she excited when you said i'm going to become a transplant surgeon or i think she was surprised she never i mean that that was never on the docket there were a couple there was no like single thing that made it happen but she was a nursing student and she would come home and talk about biology with my father and i had no idea what they were talking about and I kind of wanted to know what they were talking about. And, you know, my dad always sort of raised us to understand things. There's a story I actually told at the eulogy for my father about going out camping with him. And he had me make peanut butter sandwiches. And as I was making, the, I was like nine. And he was, I was putting the peanut butter on the bread. And as I pulled the jelly out, he goes, son, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm making peanut butter sandwich. He goes, no, 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 no. Peanut butter is hydrophobic. And he hydro, water, phobic, fears. You have to put peanut butter on both pieces of bread or the jelly will make the bread soggy because jelly is hydrophilic. And, you know, I like, all right, I'm a nine-year-old. Okay, got it. And I made the sandwiches. But I realized he was teaching me about tripartite membranes and how membranes put come together. And there's like a thousand stories where he never told me he was teaching me science, but he was teaching me science. And I think it was just meant to be. That is just brilliant. And I just want to tell you that a lot of people have told me they, they've learned a lot on this podcast, and that may be the best thing I have ever learned on this podcast. I, I always have the soggy peanut butter and jelly. So It's, you know, hydrophobic, hydrophilic. If you learn that, you know a lot. Okay, you heard it here first. Anyone out there eating peanut butter and jelly, that is amazing. I realize you got a PhD in the end, and we can talk about that, but you never considered going just the PhD science route. It was really transplant that got you excited about kind of the science world. Let's face it, transplant is amazing. And it is amazing on every level. But most importantly, it's it's like the most optimistic job because no, every single day, 
starts with somebody being nice. I mean, that's the whole reason it exists. If someone is altruistic, they say, either take my kidney or take my loved one's liver or, you know, there's no cases we do where it starts with someone being mean. It starts with someone being nice. And that gives you this sense about the world that no matter what else is going on, it's all, you know, it, there are a lot of nice people out there. I, you are so right. Like, I, I think in this crazy world we live in, it gives me this re- realization that there's, some, there's so much great about humanity. And I agree with you. The gift, whether it's from a living donor or a deceased donor, is just as much of a gift, really. When you're a transplant surgeon, people want to come see you. I still talk to people I transplanted, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And... They, they all see that as some transformative moment in their life, and, and I've gotten to be a part of it. So, like, who wouldn't like that? That's a great job. And it's so married with science that I didn't really understand that saying I wanted to be a transplant surgeon was saying I wanted to be a clinician. I've always just seen it as a, a scientist. And in fact, when I went to Duke for medical school, the third year of Duke, even back then, was a full year of research. So you did your first two years in one year, your third year in your second year, and then you had a year to research anything you wanted. And I researched with Randy Bollinger in transplant, started taking immunology courses because that seemed really important. And even when I got into residency, I still hadn't figured out that being a surgeon was not being a scientist. And it, it, it took a while. In fact, I still think being a good surgeon is being a scientist, but but that's a, you know, that can be polarized. I, I was going to get into this. I remember you telling me some time ago when we were talking that you didn't know that it would even be possible to be a surgeon without being a scientist. That was, you just, that was your impression of what you were getting into. It's interesting because now you're, yes, you're a transplant surgeon, but you're also a chairman of surgery who's thinking about all the different people that train in surgery. I mean, my dad was a scientist and then a doctor, and he always said, well, doctors aren't necessarily scientists. You know, they can be. Where do you stand on that? So you want everyone you train to get involved in science, which obviously can be a wide net or... Well, I, I mean, obviously, everyone that's in medicine doesn't have to be in science. There are lots of ways to contribute wonderfully to medicine and technical ways and conceptual ways. And, you know, there's no way to go and, and be a surgeon. But if you're coming to our program, that's our brand. Our brand is clinician scientists. So if you're not coming to Duke to be a clinician scientist, you're not being you're not going to be able to take advantage of all the stuff that we have to help with that. Um, And it's probably not the most efficient way to just go be a surgeon. And that's not a value statement either way. It's just that, you know, our brand is clinician scientists. So it's like if you go to McDonald's and you order sushi, you know, maybe that's not the place to go, right? Uh, you can go <laughs> yeah, the mix sushi is not going to be probably a good way to go. <laughs> I think that's right. Well, okay, good. So let, let's get back to your story a little bit, because I think it's really interesting how you went from just learning immunology to kind of carving out your, your niche, if you will. So you um, did immunology research with Dr. Bollinger. That was during your medical school. And, and then take me through residency and fellowship, if you can, with research. Yeah, so Randy Bollinger met me as a first-year medical student because I heard he was a transplant surgeon, so I called him up. And if you if anyone who met Randy knows he has this infectious laugh. He's a he's the nicest person anyone could ever meet uh, at any day uh, or of the day, you know, any time of the day or night. And he he brought he bought me a chocolate chip cookie and a glass of milk, literally, and sat me down and we talked for two hours. He didn't know who I was. I was a first year medical student, and that kind of got me in. But when I got into residency, it was you know transplant was moving fast in the early '80s, and it was very clear that immunology was going to be super important, and that was not something I was going to pick up on the fly. So I asked my chairman David Sabiston if I could stop my clinical residency and and go deep into immunology, and I uh, met Olia Finn, who was a junior faculty member in immunology. She eventually became the chairman of immunology at University of Pittsburgh, and she was working on T-cell 
recognition, both in cancer and in transplant. And as I did my thesis with her and stayed a couple extra years in the lab to do that. Um, But that was, that was super because all of a sudden I felt like I was able to not only keep up with people that were talking about transplant rejection, but maybe run a little faster and think of things that were, you know, not being thought of. And I was able to read the literature in a productive way. And, you know, one of one of the great things about our program was that Dr. Sabison put a library attached to the operating room. So when you're between cases, you could go in and there were all the major journals and textbooks. And so I used to go in between cases and, and catch up with nature and science and just read them. And I remember reading, uh, this was after I got my PhD, was back as a senior resident, reading an article on 41BB, which was one of the early co-stimulatory molecules that had been studied, and thinking, you know, that that could prevent rejection. And I started really diving into the field of co-stimulation, which hadn't, wasn't called that yet. Um, and it gave me a chance to come across some burgeoning molecules that were were being brought forward. And it set me up to make some really good guesses on some early experiments. And a lot of those experiments I did when I was a fellow at, at UW, which really got things uh, moving. Let me interrupt. So then the work you did for your PhD, were you working with large animals, with mice, or just cellular research? It was uh, cells that were derived from kidney biopsy. So I would go to the clinic and they would biopsy somebody with rejection or, or renal dysfunction, and they would chop off a millimeter of the biopsy and give it to me, and I could grow it, and I grew the T-cells out of it, because it then it was not even clear that people, people were still arguing about whether T-cells caused rejection. And uh, there was this new technique called flow cytometry, and we were phenotyping them, and uh, we got this new box called a PCR machine. It was the Perkin Elmer 100, you know, like the first... PCR machine. And we started just characterizing cells that were in people that had rejection versus weren't. And it was basically trying to understand, you know, what rejection was at a, at a more fundamental level. It's fascinating to think about how, how much we've advanced over a short period of time. Like you mentioned, I mean, like Medawar in the in the 50s and 60s, they didn't really even know what a T-cell was or that it was involved in this at all. And even in your own career, you're still arguing whether T-cells are involved. Um, it's amazing, really, when you think about what we're doing now. Two things are important. One is that when I went to David Zabison and said, I want to study basic science, he said, yeah. And it meant that I had to stay out of the rotation for a couple of extra years, which is, you know, for anyone who's a program director knows that that's a pain. But he said, yeah, and he said it was okay for me to go to a basic science department, and he arranged to get my tuition kind of covered. I don't know what sort of back deal he did, but it made it happen. It was an easier time back then, wasn't it, for that? <laughs> Probably was, yeah. But when I came to Wisconsin, both Dr. Belzer, who was at, toward the end of his life when I got there, and Dr. Solinger said, you know, we want you to continue to do research. And he hooked me up with a couple of drug reps who, you know, were able to send some money my way and they allowed me to hire a technician. And so even though, you know, we did like 525 transplants that year, you know, I had a tech and some lab space that they just carved out and they didn't tell me what I had to do or anything. They just said, you know, keep doing this. And Stuart Connectly had this monkey lab that was going and I was able to get hold of some experimental co-stimulatory blocking agents. And they were the first time they had ever seen primates. And Stuart was like completely gracious about saying, yeah, come on in, let's try these things out. And that, you know, it's always been the environment, whether it's someone teaching you science when you don't know it or or encouraging you, not tolerating you doing science, but encouraging you to do science. I have always been the great beneficiary of that. And even down to my wife, you know, I say, you know, I want to do, you know, more years for less pay. She was like, yeah, you know, that's what you want to do. So I'm completely blessed to have been in those circumstances. And and that's, you know, now my job as a chair is passing that torch to when someone comes in and says they want to do something, unless it's completely crazy, which it never is. I'm like, okay, let's figure this out. How are we going to do it? That's awesome. Your wife probably was like, as long as we don't have to go to the roller rink, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. But it is amazing to think about that Dr. Bollinger sat with this first year medical student for two hours and how inspirational that can be. And then, you know, Dr. Sabiston just made it work for you and 
the people here you talked about, Stuart and Hans and Belzer, like they supported you. You had the drive to do the work, but they supported you to do it. You know, at the end of the day, you have to think of something that no one else has thought of and you have to be right. And, and then you have to do the hard work to show that you're right. And there's no substitute for that. But there are a thousand things that can get in the way of that, even if you do all those things. And I was fortunate to be in a setup so that when I did have an insight that was novel and designed an experiment that would get that going, that I was at least able to do that. And, and that all, you know, that doesn't come together for a lot of people. And in fact, we're really learning now more and more how many people get left behind for all sorts of stupid reasons. As a chair now, that's my mission. Um, If I don't get another paper or, I mean, to be fair, I still have six grants and four clinical trials. (laughs) You're slowing down a little, but. (laughs) Yeah, but my main goal is finding ways to make that happen for other people and watching really cool ideas bubble up out of that. And honestly, it, it helps me do all the you know the things that I would be otherwise doing too. It's incredible. So the, at Wisconsin, you got into co-stimulatory blockade based on you know learning and work you had done earlier, but not in primates. Did you have success right off the bat? Did, was it a lot of failure, and then you got lucky? How did that play out? Well, the first couple animals we did didn't reject right away. And all they were getting was CTLA-4-IG. And, you know, eventually they rejected, but the non-human primate model at that time was an unassailable model. You know, that was, you know, nobody was getting grafts to to live long in that model. And um, when we started getting month-long survivals with just a couple of doses of this drug in a vial, that got people's attention. And when we combined it with anti-CD40 ligand and we're getting, you know, six or seven months of survival on nothing, well, people paid attention to that. And I was, again, really fortunate that CTLA-4IG had been partially developed by the Navy. And the story behind that is is a great one. It actually leads through Carl June, who is one of the great fathers of CAR T-cells. But I couldn't afford medical school, so I got the Navy to pay for it. I owed them four years. And so I started looking for what I was going to do in the Navy. And I went to the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bethesda, literally because it sounded like a good place to look at. I mean, it had the word research in it and medical and Navy. So, and I just showed up one day in Washington and talked to the commanding officer. And he said, uh, well, there's some guys doing some stuff. Uh, a guy named Carl June, you might want to talk to him. And he, he said, then he leaned in, he said, what's the best journal you've ever had a paper in? And I had just gotten a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on you know, transplant stuff we've done. So I said, well, the New England Journal of Medicine. And he goes, oh, okay. And I, he called Carl and I went over and Carl and David Harlan had just been talking about trying to find a surgeon who could help them advance, you know, CTLA-4IG research. And I walked in and they were like, whoa, this works out great. Here he is. Here he is. <laughs> so they were the ones that sent the drug up to Wisconsin for me to work with Stuart. And we all kind of put it together and uh, those papers came out right before I finished fellowship. And on, on the sixth day after fellowship, the paper came out in, in PNAS. And I was on Good Morning America talking, you know, right after Julia Roberts. So, And you didn't get to meet her, I understand. No, no she, was, she was phoning it in. Do you think she's telling people, like, I was on right before this guy, Alan Kirk? Or? No, I'm positive. <laughs> she has, this is not on her radar screen. But, uh, <laughs> Well, I think she's probably a listener of the set, so I'm sure she'll reach out. So wait, you went to, you showed up at the Navy, you were a fellow, you just like popped over there and were like, you guys got anything I can use? Was that? Well, so it was in my chief resident year, I was starting to, you know, figure out what the next step was. And the Navy was still interested in transplant because they were really concerned about nuclear accidents on submarines and how bone marrow transplant was going to happen. And the 
the military was one of the first transplant programs in the country, and it was the first organ procurement organization. Uh, and they would fly all over the country with military resources and get organs. And that vestige of the military organ procurement program still exists through a, a voluntary share program for kidneys that derive from uh, brain dead military service members that, that become donors. But I mean, really, it was, I guess you could say that it was serendipity, but it was also really aggressive attempts to figure out how am I going to make this work? Because if I had just sort of sat around, I mean, for all I know, I was going to be in Guam doing rectal exams. You know, I, I could have gone many different ways, but I really worked to try to figure out, okay, I'm in the Navy now. How do I, how is this going to work? Can I, um, you've mentioned briefly the New England Journal. Is this the project where you were perfusing uh, ex vivo uh, through a pig liver? Is that right? Can you say a few words about that? Because it's really remarkable. You were a fellow at the time. Well, so we did that. I was a, I was a resident when Ravi Chari started working in with Bill Myers on that. And so the first set of animals that we harvested and then put on basically an ECMO circuit before it was called that, um, we tried in a few people at Duke and when I was a resident, and that's the New England Journal paper, was ex vivo hepatic perfusion. So that had come out right as I was going to my chief resident year and got that going. But when I got to Madison, several Several of the liver transplanters said, what's with this? Is this something we can do? And they asked me to start it. And so we started putting together that with the vet school. And I remember there was a young woman, uh, maybe 17, 18 years old, who came in, fulminant hepatic failure, no organs. Uh, We had an emergency meeting with the IRB. And we went over to the vet school and took some livers out of pigs and brought them over and set it up. And we kept her alive for 10 days, just putting pig livers in. And she got transplanted went home, had kids, graduated. I mean, it was like a miracle. And she sent me some really nice cards and, and, you know, that was a big deal. And then we found out that there were some transgenic pigs that were being made and we tried a trial of those. It wasn't obvious that they worked better and, uh, Again, I was a fellow, so there was only so much you could do, and then I left, and that's not something that I've kept kept doing. But, you know, that was kind of, you know, if a fellow comes to your program now and says they're going to start an ex vivo perfusion program while they're doing monkey transplants with, you know, a lab tech, that's not typical. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I barely got through fellowship just doing the standard, so it's pretty remarkable. So now remind, I may be off on this, did you, when you finish your fellowship. Did you go straight to the NIH or did you go somewhere first? I can't remember. I went to the Navy. To the Navy, right. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, I I worked in the Naval Medical Research Institute, but when that paper came out, the NIH, which is across the street, had a conference that was uh, brought up by Harold Varmus to look at this concept of tolerance. And uh, the very first meeting of what became the Immune Tolerance Network, I was there as a, like, first year attending, presenting our data, and um, we put it in as a PO1. And so I got an NIH grant at the Navy. And we just two years into my attending, they asked us to start a transplant program intramurally to start doing this. And David Harlan and I started a kidney program and an islet program while we were still in the Navy, but we were deployed to the NIH across the street. And and uh, then when I finished my obligation in the Navy, I just stayed on the NIH. Didn't you, did you, am I crazy here? Or did you say that you were in the same spot in the Navy that David Hume was in when he got? Yeah. Uh, isn't that right? Yeah. Father, one of the fathers of transplant. Yeah, that's a cool connection, I think. He's a guy we all should know more about. I, I think he's a fascinating character. Yeah, and indeed. If you go to the um, the Armed Forces Radiobiology Research Institute, which is right next to the Naval Medical Research Institute on the Bethesda campus, they have an irradiator for animals, and it is large enough to irradiate an elephant. And the the floor is, is that David Hume was trying to figure out what's the biggest animal we could make ATG in and and wanted, you know, horses and and elephants and and so there's this gigantic like gymnasium size irradiator over there. That is a different era, wasn't it? <laughs> Those guys were um so how long were you at an NIH slash I guess 
NIH after you left the Navy. How long were you there? Uh, I was there for 10 years. Just in, I'm going to try and simplify your time there. Is it correct to say like your biggest goal there was to try and uh, find a protocol to achieve tolerance in patients with kidney transplant? Is that about right? Or Yeah, basically. So we did uh, some early trials with uh, anti-CD40 ligand. We used CAMPATH uh, for the first time in the United States over there. We did a bunch of trials looking at calcineurin inhibitors versus mTOR inhibitors and their relationship to belatacid when it you know, eventually came out. We did some bone marrow uh, transplant stuff. Uh, had, I mean, we had a lot of a lot of interesting projects going on. Like when we used Campath, um, that was the only drug we used. We basically wrote a protocol to see if depletion alone would lead to tolerance because in some animals it does. And we gave people Campath pre-op until they had no T cells, zero. And then we transplanted them and we gave them no immunosuppression and we kept them inpatient and, you know, following them every day. And eventually, you know, a month later, they started having an immune response and we put them on, you know, monotherapy tack or something. And they did quite well, but it at least proved that depletion alone was never going to get you to tolerance. And that's the type of experiment you can do at the NIH where you really can't do that stuff elsewhere. One of the things I've most enjoyed about the little that I guess I know in, in our interactions is is how much, even though you've done some of these amazing studies, how much you think about the ethics of doing a trial, how to do it ethically, how to do it correctly with the smallest number of patients. A lot of people might not realize how much you think about about that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, at the end of the day, you know, this we're taking care of humans. I mean, even when you're talking about non-human primates, it's still an organism with agency and and if you don't if you lose track of that, then you should not be in the field, I think. And I've always felt that we can answer most important questions with a very small number of very well controlled patients. And in fact, in if you go into my lab, one of the you know, every fellow that's come in my lab has written one quote up on the wall that stays there. And one of the ones that's always been there is the experiment is not the experiment. The control is the experiment. I think that the key is that well controlled experiments are better than any number of quick and dirty experiments. All of the experiments we do, we try to make sure the control's right. And for the experiments that we've done with co-stimulation blockade or depletion or bone marrow or you know, whatever, you can figure out what's going on with a few patients. You don't need a bunch of patients, but you can't do it sloppily. So I, I much prefer to do small numbers of very well controlled, highly mechanistically supported studies to figure out definitively what's going on. So the, the most recent series of experiments we've been doing have been with Belatacept and using Campath and Rapamycin. But the, the goal of the experiment is to prove or test whether co-stimulation blockade alone can prevent rejection. And the only way to do that is to get people on nothing but co-stimulation blockade alone. And so that's the way the experiment's built. And indeed, we've shown that if you induce correctly, you can get a large number of people living a decade with a kidney on nothing but one drug given once a month. Now, how that works? Okay, there's a lot of experiments to do that. But the fundamental question, can co-stimulation blockade with CTLA-4IG maintain people rejection-free for long periods of time? The answer is yes. And it didn't take hundreds of patients to figure that out. It took 20. How do patients get referred to the NIH for transplant? Are they coming to sign up for a trial or how does... It's mostly self-referral. 90 plus percent are self-referral. And that was one of the things I learned when I was there is that even though our outcomes were better than the UNOS predicted outcomes, it was completely free and people were taking half or less of the immunosuppression other people were taking. We got zero referrals from other transplant programs. People don't refer patients from profitable enterprises. So that is one of the reasons that I ended up going to Emory is because if I was going to move this from very small five or six patient studies, I needed to get into a, a large transplant program where there was that clinical volume because there was there was never going to be a referral for transplant to the NIH. Now that's very interesting. So in other words, if I as a patient need a kidney transplant, I could just walk into NIH. You could then. I mean, there's no transplant program there now. But yeah, I mean, you just called up and said... 
I see that there's a trial. I want to know if I'm eligible. And when you go to the NIH, all of the care is free. It, it, there's no bill. They're not even Medicare certified, I don't think. I mean, which is also great because all the rules that we follow for Medicare and Medicaid, you don't have you don't have to follow those there because they don't they don't take Medicare and Medicaid. That's amazing. So I see. So you were able to innovate and do these great things, but you were always stymied by the number of patients you would have access to, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what caused you to leave and go to Emory. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, Emory was another great scientific place. Uh, Chris Larson and Tom Pearson, you know, real pioneers in co-stimulation blockade, great surgeon scientists, also kind of went off and spent many years doing their DPhils in Oxford. And I think that it was remarkable that myself, Stuart, Tom, and Chris all got into the same practice when all all of us were studying the same thing and could have been, you know, vicious competitors. But in fact, we weren't. We all just went to the same place and started working on the same thing. Um, and that's, again, I thought I thought that was a, a really unique opportunity to go to a place that was that collegial. Um, and that's always been the way I've tried to, to practice medicine and science is to be, you know, completely open and, and collegial. I mean, that's great. There are some places that aren't like that. Um, and it doesn't make any sense to me but that's so great to hear. So when people, you hear people say sometimes, oh, we can't innovate anymore. Back in the 50s or 60s, they did whatever they wanted. We can't do that kind of thing anymore. How do you respond to that? I think that's wrong. We can innovate a lot. You can't be careless and you can't put people at risk unnecessarily. And the morals of doing good science have improved dramatically. There's all sorts of things that we've done in previous generations that are crazy. The science is way better now. It's harder to learn all the stuff you need to learn to be good at it. But, you know, most of the stuff that was done in previous eras was dangerous and bad and didn't teach us anything. And a lot of it taught us taught us wrong things that we're still trying to get rid of. But every now and then someone would do something great and would win the Nobel Prize. It's like listening to music now. You know, we think that everyone in Beethoven's time sounded like Beethoven. No, most of it was terrible music, but Beethoven was then. And, and that's what survived. It's not harder now. There's way more money available to support scientists than there was back then. Our knowledge of what, you know, the underpinnings of what makes things work is way better. The most challenging thing for surgeons is that they get distracted by the amount of money they can make doing surgery. That's the, I mean, that's the fundamental problem is that people get, they forget that our society doesn't value basic science the way it values clinical medicine, which is fine. I mean, it doesn't value clinical medicine as much as it values Lady Gaga. I mean, that's, it's okay, right? You know, there are value judgments, but if you're going to do science, then doing science is your reward for that. It's not that you're going to make a gazillion dollars and you have to be okay with that. And that gets back to what I said earlier is that you really need to be earnest in what you want to do. You got to want to do that. Do you? I know you knew Dr. Starzl and I think you've had some discussions about this. In many ways, he dragged our field kicking and screaming into a reality in terms of liver transplant. Do you think it had to be done that way? It could have been, I mean, I know it's kind of hard to comment on that, but could have been done in a different way or? Dr. Starzl is a remarkable force of nature. He's done many, many great things. I think that's right. <laughs> he was a guy who did believe innovation can still happen. At least that's what he said, at, you know, towards the end. He, he was not afraid of innovating, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. Why don't we spend the last few minutes talking a little bit about the future? So I know you're the chairman at Duke now. You're still doing research and you're, you know, helping shape how we train, I think, residents of the future also. In our own field of transplant, are we going to be doing clinical xenotransplant in the next decade? Yeah, I think we are. It is only in the in the last couple of years that I would have said that because, um, but the, but the CRISPR Cas9 technology for genetically modifying pigs is quite remarkable. Um, our understanding of which drugs are necessary is is improved. There's some phenomenal work going on in many labs uh, that are are showing that you can keep a primate alive with a non with a, a pig organ for a year. So it's still got a long way to go, 
But within the next decade, yeah, probably within the next five years, there's going to be clinical trials is my guess. It probably won't be a home run like day one, but we're in a different era than we were back when that famous, I believe it was a Shumway code, it's always our future. Like that's not the case anymore. I don't, I don't think so. I think that there's some very smart, very thoughtful people backed by very good science and considerable capital that are working on that. And I also think that cellular transplantation is really coming up strong. And, you know, pancreas transplant might be supplanted by xeno islets, but it might be supplanted by, you know, stem cell derived islets that are, uh, you know, a universal human donor strain or something like that. There's some very, very good work being done in that space now. And transplant tolerance, is that going to become, is that always going to be a small niche or is it going to be more of a reality? I mean, you can argue about this all the time, but you can't have an immune system that is able to adapt to whatever comes at it and have it unable to respond to X. You know, there's not responding to your graft, particularly an allograft, which has this big swath of reactivity because of the way allo immunity works. Anybody that's not responding to their allograft is going to have a hole in their repertoire of some sort. And so that's always going to be associated with some immune defect. Um, And that immune defect is going to be largely stochastic so that when you have a big viral insult, you're probably going to stir up rejection in some people. So you know, this idea that you can magically prevent rejection against a kidney and that kidney will be safe forever and everything else will be normal is a myth. That's just not the way immunity works. But we can get to very minimal requirements for immunosuppression, episodic, you know, the way we do for autoimmunity. Um, You know, people with multiple sclerosis take a drug once every three or four months. Or, you know, that, I think that that's very likely very soon. In fact, we're we're doing that with patients now. So um, the problem is is figuring out who's going to be excited about that other than the patients, because it's hard to get drug companies excited about giving drugs that you don't sell very much of. That's a good point. So do you, um, just another question, do you like being chairman as much as you like being a transplant surgeon and scientist? You know, not really. <laughs> it's an important opportunity to do the things in the field that you you need to do, like preserve a place where surgeons can become scientists and preserve a place where surgeons can be encouraged to be part of the scientific mission as opposed to just tolerated and keep that thread going. So that's why I do it. But the vast majority of stuff that chairs do is stuff that's not very fun and stuff I'd rather not do. But that's the price you pay to do the stuff you want to do. It's clearly, I'm so glad someone like you is doing it, but uh, I hope it doesn't take away from from also what you're doing for the future of our field. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the word passion if you look at its derivation, it comes from the the root for suffering. So, <laughs> you know, passion is what you're willing to suffer for. Yeah, I think that's right. So let me end. I like to end by asking people, what advice would you give to young people, whether going into your field or something entirely different? Is there any advice you give to young people? Be earnest. You know, do what you care about. Don't do what you think looks good. Recognize that not everybody will agree with you and you just have to deal with that. But being earnest is important. Uh, be aspirational. Don't aim for something you think you can achieve because that might be what you do then, you know, and like no one will care. So um, you got to be aspirational and then care about other people in whatever field you're in. I'll tell you, the way surgeons were raised, the way a lot of people were raised in prior decades, that last part didn't come through very well. And I think that that's one of the things as a chair that I'm trying to change. You know, there's a lot of crazy in surgery that we've got to breed out of it. And we're getting good at it, but we still have a long way to go. And being kind to one another and and just caring not only about your patients, but about your colleagues and about people who aren't in your field and your competitors. If you do that, then and, you know, probably you'll be fine. Yeah, that's great advice. I always tell people like it's so important to be sort of true to yourself and honest about what it is you really want and really care about. And I think that's somewhat similar to some of the things you said. That doesn't mean you don't have to work hard. Well, no, I mean, passion its what you're going to suffer for. You know as well as I do that you can be just dog tired you know, with your pants filling up with blood and some, you know, body that's got primary non-function and it's just, you know, two in the morning and it's terrible, but you're glad you're there. And and same thing with, you know, when you get your 
eighth rejection of whatever grant you've been trying to get in that, you know, they write back something like, you know, kill this person at once, you know, that you just, you still, that's part of the game and you like that. And you have to like the good and the bad of whatever it is you're wrapped up in uh, to do well at. And I, and I'll, I also, like you said about treating people with kindness, I try so hard to do that. We all get pushed to our limits. And anytime I do something I regret or I'm not kind to of someone, I always remember to go back and apologize. I try not to do it in the first place, but I think treating people with respect is critical. Yeah, I've, I've gotten better at that with time. I, I will say that what I was trained as, as a general surgery resident, came out as a person that I don't like very much. And, and it's taken a long time to learn. And, and the people who are kind to me taught me that, you know, Randy Bollinger and, uh, you know, Hans Solinger, Carl June and David Harlan and, you know, all of the people, Stuart Connectly, just so many great people that were kind to me. And eventually I realized that's why I'm doing well. If, I, if I'm if i going to chalk up one good thing uh, of progress, it is that I've made progress on that. That's great. Well, you've always struck me as someone who would help. I know I've reached out to you in a few different, whether it was you as editor of our big journal or as chairman or in scientifically, it always seemed like you were willing to help regardless of what it was. So if any of our listeners want to reach out and ask them a question, go for it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I give my cell phone to every single person in our program. I mean, and every patient I've ever transplanted, I give my cell phone number two. And I, I mean, no one's ever taken advantage of it. I think they see that as an act of generosity. And then they, they want to protect that. When people call me on my cell phone, it's usually something they really should be calling me about. Yeah, I totally agree. I, this is probably some sort of weird HIPAA violation, but I usually text a picture of people's organs to them, to the, the patients. And that's how I give them their my cell phone. And you're right. No one's ever taken advantage of that. Well, Alan, it's been so wonderful talking to you. You're really an inspiration to me. And I really hope, you know, 10 years from now, we're talking about the results with xenotransplant in humans and so many other innovations that I know you're going to be a part of. Thanks again. But Josh, it's, it's a pleasure. Uh, you are really, really easy to be kind to. You're such a great person. And uh, I never have a conversation with you that I don't leave with a smile. So um, I really appreciate what you do and uh, anything I can help you with in the future, you know, call anytime. Thank you so much. We'll see you. forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Wisc Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome.